that I've been able to be home for the first several weeks and months of Kinsley's life, and I'm not sure Kelsey still counts that as a blessing. She has uh, stated that I have ruined her already, but I have enjoyed uh, being more accessible, being around, being able to see and hear things throughout the work week that I normally don't get to. An example of that, I get up really early to get a head start while there's still peace and quiet, and so I get to hear my boys rise and stir in the morning, and they get into some interesting conversations, deep conversations, talking about the issues of life. They share a bed in a room uh, together, and the tenor and tone of those conversations can vary drastically depending upon what side of the bed they get up on. Sometimes they'll get after each other a little bit. But one particular moment, morning, there was a lot of noise coming out of the room, but this time it was actually good in pleasant noise. It sounded like they were having a church service, and they were singing songs, and they were singing, Be Strong and courageous, do not be afraid. And as soon as that song was over, Kyson launched into a sermon where he began by telling Lincoln, we sang that song because you need to be strong and courageous. And certainly they have sensed uh, there are some interesting things going on right now. There are some uncertainties uh, right now. And Lincoln, a few weeks and months ago, began to talk about monsters all of a sudden. And so Kyson continued with his encouragement by telling Lincoln, God's bigger than your monster. God's bigger than Goliath. God's bigger than the giant. God's bigger than everything. And he's been into athletics and competition, and he always wants to know who's winning, who won. And so he said, God always wins. And so if you'll get on God's team, you'll always win because God's undefeated. And I thought that's certainly a relevant message for any time, certainly during these hard times, and it's that message and sentiment that I want to share with you for a little this morning as we talk about facing our giant. And we're not going to take the time to read 1 Samuel chapter 17 in its entirety. I would encourage you to do that at your convenience. But as we extract key verses, as we teach principles from this story that will help us on our own personal, provide some context for those verses, want to give a quick review and summary of this story. You have two armies, arch enemies, once again squaring off, this time in the Valley of Elah, roughly 15 miles southwest of Bethlehem, not far from Jerusalem. And on one hill you had the Israelite army, and on the other hill you had the Philistine army, and in between was this valley, and essentially they're in a stalemate. And a champion from the Philistine army would go down into that valley between the two armies Twice a day for 40 days, he issued this challenge. He said, I have a solution to our problem. Instead of two armies fighting with much casualty, you send your champion to fight me, mano y mano, one-on-one, winner-take-all. And we read that God's army was afraid and greatly dismayed. Nobody accepted that challenge. young man by the name of David was sent by his father, Jesse, to Saul's army because his older brothers were fighting in that army to take them provisions and to bring back news like any parent would want of how his children were doing. And David just so happens to get there as this Philistine giant was issuing this challenge and David's appalled. He said, who's going to do something about this? Who's going to shut this guy up? And his brothers, his own brothers began to make fun of him, began to question his, we know why you're here. You, you're, you're proud. You're a naughty boy. You came to see the battle. Shouldn't you be taking care of those few 
sheep that you have in the wilderness? And David looked at his brothers and looked at the rest of the army of God and said, is there not a cause? Is there not a time to take a stand? Is there not something to fight for? And eventually he's taken to King Saul, and no doubt Saul must have been skeptical. David tells Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. God's delivered me from the lion and from the bear, and he will deliver me from this Philistine. And yet we see the desperation in Israel because Saul tries to equip this young man, perhaps a teenager, with his armor to go face this undefeated giant man-killer. And David gets on the battlefield, and Goliath is insulted that they would send a boy to do a man's job. And he essentially tells David, come over here, I'll give you a spanking. And David said, you come to me with spear and sword and armor, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And he ran to engage the enemy in fight. One well-placed stone struck Goliath. David takes Goliath's own sword and decapitates him. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. The army of God flips a switch. They now go from hiding and cowering in the bushes to jumping up and shouting and pursuing the Philistines, inflicting heavy casualties. It was a great victory in the kingdom of God that day. And I believe there are principles and lessons that we can take and learn from this story that will help us face our giants and win great victories in the kingdom of God today. And so as we talk about facing our giant, we have to first define what do we mean by that? What is a giant for the intents and purposes of our study this morning? We want to define a giant as any object or barrier that prevents or hinders or even distracts you from fulfilling your God-given purpose in life. So the follow-up question is, what's my God-given purpose in life? The wise man in the book of Ecclesiastes, the ultimate book on the purpose and meaning of life, final chapter, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Our purpose, like the rest of God's creation, is to glorify God. That means to draw attention to God, to show God is important, to show God is number one. And anything in your life that prevents hinders, or even distracts you from doing that is a giant that you have to face and defeat in your life. Whether that's an attitude, whether that's an addiction, whether that's relationships, recreation, maybe it's pride, selfishness, money, pleasures, false doctrine, whatever it is. You know, even David, the one who faced and defeated the giant, sometimes felt like an underdog. Psalm 38, verse 19, But mine enemies are lively, and they are strong, and they that hate me wrongfully are multiplied. We all face challenges in life that rise up before us that seem 10 feet tall and insurmountable. As Christians, we know that God is with us and for us, but how do we get through these tough times? How do we face it? We all face adversity in life, but we all don't respond to adversity the same way. And so the question for us to consider, what we have to figure out is how do we as Christians accept these challenges and face this adversity in a way that will bring glory and honor to our God. And I think there are principles and lessons filled, contained within this story that will teach us exactly how it is we go about doing that. So it starts with identifying and defining our giants 
And then we have to put our faith and our trust and our confidence and our conviction in God. Impossible is nothing to God. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And I appreciate very much the lesson Noah gave the other day because it is so critical that we get these verses in their context. Because when we don't do that, when we don't know the context of what Paul's talking about in these circumstances, we trivialize these powerful messages. And I love the meme. I can do all things through taking a verse out of context, and that's what happens. When we get these verses out of context and we make them about self-fulfilling, self-interest that often violate the will of God for us in our life, and we don't get what we want and what we think we deserve, and then we get discouraged, we lose heart, we lose faith, and we roll over and quit. David and Paul here is talking about things that David was experiencing when he faced a giant life and death. And he's saying that essentially no matter what throws my way, I can endure, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Romans chapter 8, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. You know what I think one of the greatest misconceptions about this story you know, it's so familiar that even secular confrontations from national politics to athletics are often verbalized in David versus Goliath terminology. How often do we hear about a team facing another team or some politician and, and, and facing insurmountable odds? David versus Goliath. And the person or the team facing insurmountable odds is David. But I want to tell you who the underdog was that day. It was a 10-foot tall, uncircumcised Philistine giant who twice a day for 40 days cursed and defied the armies of the living God. And David was very much the favorite because if God be for us, who can be against us? And we all face these times in life when what seemingly can't be done stands toe-to-toe and face-to-face with what must be done. And to win that fight... We have to have a courage, a confidence, a conviction that we see in David. There was nothing in the world from a worldly perspective that should have gave this young man such courage and confidence and swagger, yet he had something within him that caused him to engage in this fight. Psalm 23, verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and that's exactly what he did, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 118, verse 1, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? Courage isn't the absence of fear, but rather courage is the awareness, the understanding, the conviction that there is someone and something who's bigger than my fear and more important than my fear. And it's what motivates us to engage and understand also that there's a difference between faith and presumption between faith and testing God between courage and recklessness and I've had to learn that lesson the hard way in life where I've made decisions that put me in a position where I've had to summon more courage than I should have had to because of my recklessness and I find myself in a compromising dangerous situation faith doesn't go looking for trouble You know, when I go to India, I can assure you, I don't want to be persecuted. (laughs) I don't want to be a martyr. I want to come home. It's one of my favorite things about that trip is coming home. I don't go looking for trouble. That's not what Christians do. 
But when trouble finds us, as it did with David, as it did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3, I know you're able, and I know you can save through the fire with your mighty hand, but even if you don't, my hope is you alone. And it's that courage, that confidence, that conviction, that trust, that faith, hope, and love that allow us to face and defeat our giant like David did. And I think there's a very powerful and encouraging lesson that we see in the previous chapter, backing up to 1 Samuel chapter 16, as the prophet Samuel was sent to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king in Israel because Saul was rejected by God. He looked apart. He stood head and shoulders above everybody else, but he didn't have the heart of a king. And so God's rejected him. He's sending Samuel to go anoint the next king in Israel at the house of Jesse. Samuel thinks, surely it's one of these older brothers David's own dad, Jesse, did not even bother to take David with him. Surely not David, not the runt, not the baby. And yet the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And there's a great lesson in this, that God is not limited by outward appearances. God sees where man can't, where we would judge people and select people for leadership and service based on outward circumstances, how wealthy they are, how talented they are, how dynamic they are, how well-educated they are, how good-looking they are, how tall they are. God sees the heart. And if our heart is humble and right before God, God can use us to accomplish great victories just like He did with David. We read David's story and wonder, what could God have ever possibly saw in David? He stumbled as often as he stood. He fell as often as he conquered. He stared down Goliath and then lusted after Bathsheba. He defied God mockers in the valley. Then he joined them in the wilderness. He could lead an army, but he couldn't manage his family. And we see in this that God, if we have a heart, after God, as David did, if our heart is humble and right before God, God can use us in spite of ourselves and all of our failings and smallness and weakness to do great things because that's what God does. That's what God always has done, to show His power and might. And God can use us if our heart is humble and right before Him. But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Impossible is nothing to God. We learn from this story that God wants volunteers. I think one of the most powerful statements of conviction in the Bible is when David turned to his own brothers who were making fun of him and to the rest of the army of God and said, is there not a cause? Is there not something worth fighting for? Is there not something worth living for? Is there not something worth dying for? Where's your conviction? Is there not a cause? It's the cause that motivates us to volunteer for service in the army of the Lord. Would you rather go to battle, join a team, or be on a project with somebody who believes so much in the why, the mission statement behind the what and the how that they signed up to fight, or somebody who was voluntold? Who's going to dig in when times get tough? I want to tell you, this congregation will knock down walls. We will grow tremendously if we are full of people who have signed up to fight, who have volunteered. When's the last time we went to God and went to our leadership and said, who am I, send me? Whatever it takes, whatever I need to do, if I need to take out the trash, I'll do it. If we're not doing that consistently and constantly, it's because we don't believe in the cause. 
We don't believe in why we're here. And understand that fun-making doesn't get it done. Have we become the elder brother? Have we become Eliab? Making fun of, discouraging those who care enough to compete in the field while we stand on the sideline. And we become that armchair quarterback. You know where the armchair quarterback is? Sitting in an armchair. (laughs) Don't let that get you down. And maybe we should thank God for armchair quarterbacks in our life because maybe we need them in our life to galvanize us, to motivate us to step up and defend our faith because I think sometimes in our luxuries, in our conveniences, in our constitutional rights and freedoms, we have grown soft and selfish. Is there not a cause? It's the cause that motivates us to volunteer for service in the army of the Lord. And I want to tell you this morning, I would rather volunteer and serve in a cause that will ultimately win than win in a cause that will one day ultimately lose. Christianity is a cause, not a cruise. And this lesson teaches us to volunteer for service in the army of the Lord, and then it teaches us also how we fight that good fight of faith that Paul talked about in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He writes in 2 Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That's where the battle's won. That's where the battle's fought, not on a literal, carnal battlefield, but in our heart and our mind. Jesus frequently emphasized that our outward words... And actions are a product of our inward thoughts, of who we are on the inside, of the heart that God sees. And I want to tell you, if we have a carnal solution and a carnal worldview and a carnal perspective to our carnal problems, we become the problem. When we have a carnal, worldly, political perspective instead of a biblical perspective, we become the problem. We become the uncircumcised to find God, and we see in this story the power of truth. God's cause does not depend upon elaborate armor and weaponry. David came to him in the name of the Lord. And we see a great lesson in this power of truth in an age where many within Christendom are losing ground because we have tried to bribe people to come with every gimmick and method imaginable, promising them entertainment. And we need to be reminded maybe of Where the power is. The power is and always will be the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God into salvation. And so Saul tries to fit David with his armor, and David eventually says, I can't go with these. I haven't proven them. I haven't tested them. And there's a lesson in this. God calls us to go with what we have, what he's given us. I can't wear your armor. You can't wear mine. But God's given us more than enough with what he's equipped us with. Just like David, God's put enough in your shepherd's bag, your toolbox, your purse, your European handbag and satchel to get the job done. Put on the whole armor of God. Be girded with the truth, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We're not ignorant of Satan's devices because God has given us our battle plan and He's given us the enemy's battle plan. The breastplate of righteousness, protecting us, our heart, our inner person from the destruction and devastation of unrighteousness, of sin. The helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, protecting our mind, our way of thinking, giving us hope, something to hold on to when there's nothing left 
when it's all faith from here. The preparation of the gospel of peace, the importance of preparation. David took five smooth stones. Somebody said it didn't sound like he was too confident. Maybe he wanted to be prepared for what came next. And I want to tell you, whether it's a Bible study, be ready to give an answer. When do we prepare for that? Whether it's a Bible study, a sermon, an encounter, an exchange, an environment, a situation we're going to find ourselves in, it's better to be go loaded for bear to show up with more than enough than to get there and not have what you need. David stumbled upon this situation. He didn't go looking for trouble, but it found him. And so it is with many situations and circumstances in life. Now I believe our life often is a sum, total, cumulative effect of daily, seemingly insignificant choices that add up over time, certainly. But sometimes there are crossroads, there are pivotal moments, there are giant decisions that rise up and appear before us, and maybe we see the providence of God. Now, we need to be careful about that. We sometimes say, this was a God thing. God wanted me to take this job, and it contradicts maybe or violates God's will for us. We talked about that earlier. But while I don't always understand the why, what, where, when of the providence of God, I certainly believe in the providence of God. And maybe sometimes God puts you in a certain place at a certain time with certain people Like Esther, for such a time as this, and it's your turn to step up and shine bright to the glory of God. And the way that you handle terminal illness or loss or addiction or sin or difficulty or through your evangelism and your ministry, and it's your turn to step up and inspire other people. Romans 5, and not only so, but we glory in tribulation. Why? Knowing that tribulation works patience and patience experience and experience hope. We glory in tribulation because it brings to the surface those things that God sees that we can. It exposes us. The growth that takes place, and we come out on the other side with a greater dependence and confidence in God by being battle-tested. We glory in tribulation. You know, things that are great almost always are hard. It's the hard that gives value and meaning to the greatness It's on the battlefield that we learn this faith, this trust, this confidence in God. How often have we seen people that handle things that we think, man, that would just be devastating? Loss, death, illness, discouragement. And they handle it with such grace and faith and poise. And they inspire us. That's what faith does. We see that in David as his faith inspired other people. The Philistine solar champion was dead and realized if God could deliver their champion into the hands of this boy, he could certainly deliver their army into his. Children of Israel flip a switch. They rise, they shout, they pursue the Philistines. The Jewish historian Josephus writes that they inflicted up to 100,000 casualties that day. They took Goliath's head to Jerusalem. That was a practice in that day. His sword found its way into the temple. It was a great victory in the kingdom of God that day, and that's what your faith, you fighting the good fight of faith, going down swinging if you have to. The way you handle adversity, your evangelism, your ministry can inspire other people to engage in the fight, to fight the good fight of faith. And we see in this, this lesson that sometimes it's having the courage to step out and be different. And, I, and, and, and we see in David, one of the most powerful scenes in the entire Bible, as David runs from the safety and security of his army towards the ranks and lines 
of his enemies, seemingly all alone. And I can't imagine a more powerful scene, one of the most powerful scenes in the Bible. They probably never forgot what they saw that day. And maybe we've seen scenes like that in life. Maybe it's been manufactured in movies with the background music that gives you goosebumps. Maybe we talk a lot in athletics about seeing something that was so inspiring. But hopefully we've seen things that are maybe deeper in more Philippians 4 context in life and death, the way somebody handles something, and we see the way they handle that adversity, the way they fight and go down swinging. Maybe they step up and teach the truth and say something that needs to be said, or maybe it's not just a sermon they preach, but a life that they lived, and they inspire us. And this leads to our final point. We learn from this story that the battle belongs to the Lord. Throughout 1 Samuel 17, you see David over and over, all he could do was talk about God, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the Lord will deliver thee, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. You know, the problem is that we want to fight these battles alone, on our own terms, in our own way. David talked openly about his God to Saul. He talked openly about God to his enemy, to Goliath. Don't meet the enemy on his terms. David might not could have lifted Goliath's armor. It didn't matter. His God could. And if God is in control, if God is fighting your battle, if God is sovereign, the child of God ultimately always wins. And so give glory to God. David wasn't concerned that the whole world would know who he was, but he was very concerned that the whole world would know who his God was. And if we'll make our battles about God and about others instead of ourselves, we will find the courage, the conviction, the motivation to do seemingly impossible things. Because all too often, if we're not careful, we lose sight of who and what we're fighting for. And just by way of a reminder in these turbulent times, just in case we need a reminder of what the mission of the church is, the mission of the church is not creating a better national government or economy promoting and defending the Constitution. It's not about November 3rd, 2020. And I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. I'm not saying that we can't make a difference. But what I'm saying is if we convert the whole world to a political ideology or some political issue, but we don't convert them to Jesus, what does it profit? How many people are going to heaven? And we try to convert people on these issues without first converting them to Jesus, which isn't profitable isn't effective, but if we'll convert people to Jesus, these moral issues, even these political issues, they take care of themselves. The mission of the church is and always will be to make disciples of all nations, to seek and save the lost, to love God with all of our being, and the second is likened to it, to love your neighbor as yourself, to fear God and keep his commandments. And I think Satan's so effective of tying us up on these wild goose chases and, and these rabbit trails, and we're so busy, I've been guilty of it, on social media trying to educate the world that, and warn them about certain brands of toilet paper or that the earth is flat instead of preaching the message that God has given to us. And in the effort of trying to educate and enlighten, we come across as ignorant, arrogant, belligerent, and we lose credibility, influence, and reputation for what cause? For what victory? For what purpose? For vanity of vanities that consume us that won't matter once we and our audience is dead. 
And all too often we die on these hills that God hasn't called us to take. And Satan gets us so busy chasing squirrels <laughs> that we forget to fish. As we talk about the importance of our focus and our perspective in winning this fight, sometimes we think, you know, I can't handle this. I can't do this. My sin's too big. It's too great. And you're right. But the truth is, your God is big enough to handle it. Last time I checked, God is still undefeated. From God's perspective, there's no such thing as a giant. And as we encounter things like financial failure, loss of a job, disappointment, discouragement, loneliness, addictions, COVID-19, that appear before us that are very real and very large, we think, how do I handle that? The secret to David's success was that David saw God, giants versus God, not giants versus David. And that's the secret to our success as well. From David's faith in God caused him to look at the giant from God's perspective. From God's perspective, Goliath was just a mortal man defying an immortal, all-powerful God. David looked at his obstacle from God's point of view. And if we'll look at giant problems and in possible situations from a godly perspective, if we realize that God will fight with us and for us, when we put things in proper focus and perspective, we can see more clearly and we can fight more effectively. If we will zoom out, we can dilute our problems. And I want to do that with you for a moment. We think about the size of our God in relation to our problems. We can't define God's unlimited and so what we do is we look at the size of what God, God's created, which should cause us to think about how infinitely greater and bigger was the one who created all of this. Think about just our place in God's creation. We're just a speck. This third rock orbiting the sun, 93 million miles away from the sun. The sun is so big that you could fit one million earths inside of it, yet the sun is just a moderately sized star. The largest stars would contain three billion suns and three quadrillion earths. Consider just the size of our Milky Way galaxy. You see here a picture. We're just a speck in the Milky Way galaxy. So large, the Milky Way galaxy is said to be 100,000 light years in diameter. And yet it's just a moderately sized galaxy in a universe that maybe contains two trillion galaxies. Milky Way galaxy, 100,000 light years in diameter. The universe is estimated to be 93 billion light years in diameter. And to illustrate how big the universe is, suppose this quarter represents our solar system, just our place. And dust that you can't even see represents the planets. The universe, in comparison to this quarter, would be like the size of the United States of America compared to this quarter. That's how big what God has created is. And that should humble us. That should make us realize how small and weak and fragile we are, but it should give us great confidence in the God who created and redeemed us. We'll look at a few verses in Isaiah. To whom will you liken God or what likeness? Can, God is incomparable. There's not a galaxy that compares to God. It is He who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain 
The universe, 93 billion light years in diameter. God stretched them out like a curtain. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And the encouragement, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand, the same right hand that stretched out the universe, that created everything, that created you, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. And so as we think about the sovereignty of God, we talk about the omnis. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. Maybe one of the most amazing things of all that God in all of His greatness and all of His power and all of His sovereignty and all of His holiness still chooses to occupy the smallest of places, the most insignificant of places, you and me. And if the earth is his footstool, then how big is that giant now? So do what David did. Look at the size of your God instead of the size of your obstacle. When you do, you'll discover that if God was big enough and strong enough and undefeated enough to take care of David's giant, he's still big enough, strong enough, and undefeated enough to take care of yours. So be strong in the Lord and the power of his might because God in you and through you is bigger than any obstacle you face in life. David was God-centered. Nobody was talking about God. That's all David could talk about. He only made one comment about his enemy when we would size him up. You know, what's his record? How big is he? David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine defying the army of God? David wasn't giant-centered. He wasn't David-centered. He was God-centered. And that is absolutely the solution to all the problems. And it begs the question, in my conversations and discussions, when what I'm posting on social media, am I talking about my enemies? <laughs> Or am I talking about my God? So don't give up. Never back down. Never give up. Never lose faith. You are never out of the fight unless you choose to be, unless you roll over and quit. So fight for what you is right. Fight for your marriage. Fight for your children. Fight for your neighbor and family and friends. Fight for your soul. Fight for the souls of others. Fight for the lost. Fight for this congregation. Fight for the church. Fight for what's right. Fight for the cause. Ride for the brand. And fight, live, and die for what you really believe in. And as we offer an invitation this morning, understand that Satan will be out there taunting you every day of your life until you stand up and fight back. That giant sin separating you from God Focus on what he did, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Like David, focus on what God can do, not what you did. Put your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Believe, repent, and be baptized and resurrected to walk and fight the good fight of faith and newness of life. Maybe as a Christian, you need to re-engage the principles we've talked about this morning. Understand, Satan is issuing a challenge. Christ offers you an invitation. 
Do you have the courage, the confidence, the conviction, the guts to step out and accept that challenge, the greatest challenge a person could ever accept in their life to become a Christian and remain faithful as such? If you need to accept that challenge, the Lord invites you to come. Please have a seat on the front as we stand and sing together.